0: chapter thirteen of chrome yellow by aldous huxley this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter thirteen henry wimbush brought down with him to dinner a budget of printed sheets loosely bound together in a cardboard portfolio Today, he said exhibiting it with a certain solemnity to-day i have finished the printing of my history of chrome i helped to set up the type of the last page this evening the famous history cried anne the writing and the printing of this magnum opus had been going on as long as she could remember all her childhood long uncle henry's history had been a vague and fabulous thing often heard of and never seen it has taken me nearly thirty years said mr wimbush twenty-five years of writing and nearly four of printing and now it's finished the whole chronicle from sir ferdinando Lepe's birth to the death of my father, William Wimbush, more than three centuries and a half, a history of chrome, written at chrome, and printed at chrome by my own press. Shall we be allowed to read it now it's finished, asked Dennis? Mr. Wimbush nodded. Certainly, he said, and I hope you will not find it uninteresting, he added modestly. Our muniment room is particularly rich in ancient records, and I have some genuinely new light to throw on the introduction of the three-pronged fork and the people asked gombauld sir ferdinando and the rest of them were they amusing were there any crimes or tragedies in the family let me see henry wimbush rubbed his chin thoughtfully i can only think of two suicides one violent death four or perhaps five broken hearts and half a dozen little blots on the scutcheon in the way of misalliances seductions natural children and the like no on the whole it's a placid and uneventful record the wimbushes and the Lapists were always an unadventurous respectable crew said priscilla with a note of scorn in her voice if i were to write my family history now why it would be one long continuous blot from beginning to end she laughed jovially and helped herself to another glass of wine if i were to write mine mr scogan remarked it wouldn't exist after the second generation we scogans are lost in the mists of antiquity after dinner said henry wimbush a little piqued by his wife's disparaging comment on the masters of chrome i'll read you an episode from my history that will make you admit that even the lapiths in their own respectable way had their tragedies and strange adventures i'm glad to hear it said priscilla glad to hear what asked jenny emerging suddenly from her private interior world like a cuckoo from a clock she received an explanation smiled nodded cuckooed at last i see and popped back clapping shut the door behind her dinner was eaten the party had adjourned to the drawing-room now said henry wimbush pulling up a chair to the lamp he put on his round pince-nez rimmed with tortoise-shell and began cautiously to turn over the pages of his loose and still fragmentary book he found his place at last shall i begin he asked looking up do said priscilla yawning in the midst of an attentive silence mr wimbush gave a little preliminary cough and started to read the infant who was destined to become the fourth baronet of the name of lapith was born in the year 1740. he was a very small baby weighing not more than three pounds at birth but from the first he was sturdy and healthy in honour of his maternal grandfather sir hercules ockham of bishop's ockham he was christened hercules his mother like many other mothers kept a notebook in which his progress from month to month was recorded he walked at ten months and before his second year was out he had learnt to speak a number of words at three years he weighed but twenty-four pounds and at six though he could read and write perfectly and showed a remarkable aptitude for music he was no larger and heavier than a well-grown child of two meanwhile his mother had borne two other children a boy and a girl one of whom died of croup during infancy while the other was carried off by smallpox before it reached the age of five hercules remained the only surviving child on his twelfth birthday hercules was still only three feet and two inches in height his head which was very handsome and nobly shaped was too big for his body but otherwise he was exquisitely proportioned and for his size of great strength and agility his parents in the hope of making him grow consulted all the most eminent physicians of the time their various prescriptions were followed to the letter but in vain one ordered a very plentiful meat diet another exercise a third constructed a little rack modelled on those employed by the holy inquisition on which young hercules was stretched with excruciating torments for half an hour every morning and evening in the course of the next three years hercules gained perhaps two inches after that his growth stopped completely and he remained for the rest of his life a pygmy of three feet and four inches his father who had built the most extravagant hopes upon his son planning for him in his imagination a military career equal to that of marlborough found himself a disappointed man i have brought an abortion into the world he would say and he took so violent a dislike to his son that the boy dared scarcely come into his presence his temper which had been serene was turned by disappointment to moroseness and savagery he avoided all company being as he said ashamed to show himself the father of a lusus naturae among normal healthy human beings and took to solitary drinking which carried him very rapidly to his grave for the year before hercules came of age his father was taken off by an apoplexy his mother whose love for him had increased with the growth of his father's unkindness did not long survive but little more than a year after her husband's death succumbed after eating two dozen of oysters to an attack of typhoid fever hercules thus found himself at the age of twenty-one alone in the world and master of a considerable fortune including the estate and mansion of crome the beauty and intelligence of his childhood had survived into his manly age and but for his dwarfish stature he would have taken his place among the handsomest and most accomplished young men of his time he was well read in the greek and latin authors as well as in all the moderns of any merit who had written in english french or italian he had a good ear for music and was no indifferent performer on the violin which he used to play like a bass viol seated on a chair with the instrument between his legs to the music of the harpsichord and clavichord he was extremely partial but the smallness of his hands made it impossible for him ever to perform upon these instruments he had a small ivory flute made for him on which whenever he was melancholy he used to play a simple country air or jig affirming that this rustic music had more power to clear and raise the spirits than the most artificial productions of the masters from an early age he practised the composition of poetry but though conscious of his great powers in this art he would never publish any specimen of his writing my stature he would say is reflected in my verses if the public were to read them it would not be because i am a poet but because i am a dwarf several manuscript books of sir hercules poems survive A single specimen will suffice to illustrate his qualities as a poet. In ancient days, while yet the world was young, ere Abram fed his flocks or Homer sung, when blacksmith Tubal tamed creative fire, and Jabal dwelt in tents and Jubal struck the lyre, flesh-grown corrupt brought forth a monstrous birth, and obscene giants trod the shrinking earth. Till god impatient of their sinful brood gave rein to wrath and drowned them in the flood teeming again repeopled tellus bore the lubber hero and the man of war huge towers of brawn topped with an empty skull witlessly bold heroically dull long ages passed and man grown more refined slighter in muscle but of vaster mind smiled at his grandsire's broadsword bow and bill and learned to wield the pencil and the quill the glowing canvas and the written page immortalized his name from age to age his name emblazoned on fame's temple wall for art grew great as humankind grew small thus man's long progress step by step we trace the giant dies the hero takes his place the giant vile the dull heroic block at one we shudder and at one we mock man last appears in him the soul's pure flame burns brightlier in a not-inordinate frame of old when heroes fought and giants swarmed men were huge mounds of matter scarce informed wearied by leavening so vast a mass the spirit slept and all the mind was crass the smaller carcass of these later days is soon informed the soul unwearied plays and like a pharaoh's darts abroad her mental rays but can we think that providence will stay man's footsteps here upon the upward way mankind in understanding and in grace advanced so far beyond the giant's race hence impious thought still led by god's own hand mankind proceeds towards the promised land a time will come prophetic i describe remoter dawns along the gloomy sky when happy mortals of a golden age will backward turn the dark historic page and in our vaunted race of men behold a form as gross a mind as dead and cold as we in giants see and warriors of old a time will come wherein the soul shall be from all superfluous matter wholly free when the light body agile as a fawn's shall sport with grace along the velvet lawns nature's most delicate and final birth mankind perfected shall possess the earth but ah not yet for still the giant's race huge though diminished tramps the earth's fair face gross and repulsive yet perversely proud men of their imperfections boast aloud vain of their bulk of all they still retain of giant ugliness absurdly vain at all that's small they point their stupid scorn and monsters think themselves divinely born sad is the fate of those ah sad indeed the rare precursors of the nobler breed who come man's golden glory to foretell but pointing heavenwards live themselves in hell as soon as he came into the estate sir hercules set about remodelling his household for though by no means ashamed of his deformity indeed if we may judge from the poem quoted above he regarded himself as being in many ways superior to the ordinary race of man he found the presence of full-grown men and women embarrassing realizing too that he must abandon all ambitions in the great world he determined to retire absolutely from it and to create as it were at crome a private world of his own in which all should be proportionable to himself accordingly he discharged all the old servants of the house and replaced them gradually as he was able to find suitable successors by others of dwarfish stature in the course of a few years he had assembled about himself a numerous household no member of which was above four feet high and the smallest among them scarcely two feet and six inches his father's dogs such as setters mastiffs greyhounds and a pack of beagles he sold or gave away as too large and too boisterous for his house replacing them by pugs and king charles spaniels and whatever other breeds of dog were the smallest his father's stable was also sold for his own use whether riding or driving he had six black shetland ponies with four very choice piebald animals of new forest breed having thus settled his household entirely to his own satisfaction it only remained for him to find some suitable companion with whom to share his paradise sir hercules had a susceptible heart and had more than once between the ages of sixteen and twenty felt what it was to love but here his deformity had been a source of the most bitter humiliation for having once dared to declare himself to a young lady of his choice he had been received with laughter on his persisting she had picked him up and shaken him like an importunate child telling him to run away and plague her no more the story soon got about indeed the young lady herself used to tell it as a particularly pleasant anecdote and the taunts and mockery it occasioned were a source of the most acute distress to hercules from the poems written at this period we gather that he meditated taking his own life in course of time however he lived down this humiliation but never again though he often fell in love and that very passionately did he dare to make any advances to those in whom he was interested after coming to the estate and finding that he was in a position to create his own world as he desired it he saw that if he was to have a wife which he very much desired being of an affectionate and indeed amorous temper he must choose her as he had chosen his servants from among the race of dwarfs but to find a suitable wife was he found a matter of some difficulty for he would marry none who was not distinguished by beauty and gentle birth the dwarfish daughter of lord Bemboro, he refused on the ground that besides being a pigmy she was hunchbacked while another young lady an orphan belonging to a very good family in hampshire was rejected by him because her face like that of so many dwarfs was wizened and repulsive finally when he was almost despairing of success he heard from a reliable source that count titimalo a venetian nobleman possessed a daughter of exquisite beauty and great accomplishments Who was three feet in height setting out at once for venice he went immediately on his arrival to pay his respects to the count whom he found living with his wife and five children in a very mean apartment in one of the poorer quarters of the town indeed the count was so far reduced in his circumstances that he was even then negotiating so it was rumoured with a travelling company of clowns and acrobats who had had the misfortune to lose their performing dwarf for the sale of his diminutive daughter philomena sir hercules arrived in time to save her from this untoward fate for he was so much charmed by philomena's grace and beauty that at the end of three days courtship he made her a formal offer of marriage which was accepted by her no less joyfully than by her father who perceived in an english son-in-law a rich and unfailing source of revenue after an unostentatious marriage at which the english ambassador acted as one of the witnesses sir hercules and his bride returned by sea to england where they settled down as it proved to a life of uneventful happiness chrome and its household of dwarfs delighted philomena who felt herself now for the first time to be a free woman living among her equals in a friendly world she had many tastes in common with her husband especially that of music she had a beautiful voice of a power surprising in one so small and could touch a in alt without effort accompanied by her husband on his fine cremona fiddle which he played as we have noted before as one plays a bass viol she would sing all the liveliest and tenderest airs from the operas and cantatas of her native country seated together at the harpsichord they found that they could with their four hands play all the music written for two hands of ordinary size a circumstance which gave sir hercules unfailing pleasure when they were not making music or reading together which they often did both in english and italian they spent their time in healthful outdoor exercises sometimes rowing in a little boat on the lake but more often riding or driving occupations in which because they were entirely new to her filomena especially delighted When she had become a perfectly proficient rider, Filomena and her husband used often to go hunting in the park, at that time very much more extensive than it is now. They hunted not foxes nor hares, but rabbits, using a pack of about thirty black and fawn-coloured pugs, a kind of dog which, when not overfed, can course a rabbit as well as any of the smaller breeds four dwarf grooms dressed in scarlet liveries and mounted on white exmoor ponies hunted the pack while their master and mistress in green habits followed either on the black shetlands or on the piebald new forest ponies a picture of the whole hunt dogs horses grooms and masters was painted by william stubbs whose work sir hercules admired so much that he invited him though a man of ordinary stature to come and stay at the mansion for the purpose of executing this picture stubbs likewise painted a portrait of sir hercules and his lady driving in their great enamelled drawn by four black shetlands sir hercules wears a plum-coloured velvet coat and white breeches philomena is dressed in flowered muslin and a very large hat with pink feathers the two figures in their gay carriage stand out sharply against the dark background of trees But to the left of the picture the trees fall away and disappear so that the four black ponies are seen against a pale and strangely lurid sky that has the golden-brown color of thunderclouds lighted up by the sun in this way four years passed happily by at the end of that time philomena found herself great with child sir hercules was overjoyed if god is good he wrote in his day-book the name of lapith will be preserved and our rarer and more delicate race transmitted through the generations until in the fullness of time the world shall recognize the superiority of those beings whom now it uses to make fun of on his wife's being brought to bed of a son he wrote a poem to the same effect the child was christened ferdinando in memory of the builder of the house with the passage of the months a certain sense of disquiet began to invade the minds of sir hercules and his lady for the child was growing with an extraordinary rapidity. At a year, he weighed as much as Hercules had weighed when he was three. Ferdinando goes crescendo, wrote Filomena in her diary. It seems not natural. At 18 months, the baby was almost as tall as their smallest jockey, who was a man of 36. Could it be that Ferdinando was destined to become a man of the normal, gigantic dimensions? It was a thought to which neither of his parents dared yet give open utterance but in the secrecy of their respective diaries they brooded over it in terror and dismay on his third birthday ferdinando was taller than his mother and not more than a couple of inches short of his father's height today for the first time wrote sir hercules we discuss the situation the hideous truth can be concealed no longer ferdinando is not one of us on this his third birthday a day when we should have been rejoicing at the health the strength and beauty of our child we wept together over the ruin of our happiness god give us strength to bear this cross at the age of eight ferdinando was so large and so exuberantly healthy that his parents decided though reluctantly to send him to school he was packed off to eton at the beginning of the next half a profound peace settled upon the house ferdinando returned for the summer holidays larger and stronger than ever one day he knocked down the butler and broke his arm he is rough inconsiderate unamenable unamenable to persuasion wrote his father the only thing that will teach him manners is corporal chastisement ferdinando who at this age was already seventeen inches taller than his father received no corporal chastisement one summer holidays about three years later Ferdinando returned to Crom, accompanied by a very large, mastiff dog. He had bought it from an old man at Windsor, who had found the beast too expensive to feed. It was a savage, unreliable animal. Hardly had it entered the house when it attacked one of Sir Hercules' favourite pugs, seizing the creature in its jaws and shaking it till it was nearly dead. Extremely put out by this occurrence, Sir Hercules ordered that the beast should be chained up in the stable-yard ferdinando sullenly answered that the dog was his and he would keep it where he pleased his father growing angry bade him take the animal out of the house at once on pain of his utmost displeasure ferdinando refused to move his mother at this moment coming into the room the dog flew at her knocked her down and in a twinkling had very severely mauled her arm and shoulder in another instant it must infallibly have had her by the throat had not sir hercules drawn his sword and stabbed the animal to the heart turning on his son he ordered him to leave the room immediately as being unfit to remain in the same place with the mother whom he had nearly murdered so awe-inspiring was the spectacle of sir hercules standing with one foot on the carcass of the gigantic dog his sword drawn and still bloody so commanding were his voice his gestures and the expression of his face that ferdinando slunk out of the room in terror and behaved himself for all the rest of the vacation in an entirely exemplary fashion his mother soon recovered from the bites of the mastiff but the effect on her mind of this adventure was ineradicable from that time forth she lived always among imaginary terrors the two years which ferdinando spent on the continent making the grand tour were a period of happy repose for his parents but even now the thought of the future haunted them nor were they able to solace themselves with all the diversions of their younger days the lady philomena had lost her voice and sir hercules was grown too rheumatical to play the violin he it is true still rode after his pugs but his wife felt herself too old and since the episode of the mastiff too nervous for such sports at most to please her husband she would follow the hunt at a distance in a little gig drawn by the safest and oldest of the shetlands the day fixed for ferdinando's return came round philomena sick with vague dreads and presentiments retired to her chamber and her bed sir hercules received his son alone a giant in a brown traveling suit entered the room welcome home my son said sir hercules in a voice that trembled a little I hope i see you well sir ferdinando bent down to shake hands then straightened himself up again the top of his father's head reached to the level of his hip ferdinando had not come alone two friends of his own age accompanied him and each of the young men had brought a servant not for thirty years had crome been desecrated by the presence of so many members of the common race of men sir hercules was appalled and indignant but the laws of hospitality had to be obeyed he received the young gentleman with grave politeness and sent the servants to the kitchen with orders that they should be well cared for the old family dining-room was dragged out into the light and dusted sir hercules and his lady were accustomed to dine at a small table twenty inches high simon the aged butler who could only just look over the edge of the big table was helped at supper by the three servants brought by ferdinando and his guests sir hercules presided and with his usual grace supported a conversation on the pleasures of foreign travel the beauties of art and nature to be met with abroad the opera at venice the singing of the orphans in the churches of the same city and on other topics of a similar nature the young men were not particularly attentive to his discourses they were occupied in watching the efforts of the butler to change the plates and replenish the glasses they covered their laughter by violent and repeated fits of coughing or choking sir hercules affected not to notice but changed the subject of the conversation to sport upon this one of the young men asked whether it was true as he had heard that he used to hunt the rabbit with a pack of pug dogs sir hercules replied that it was and proceeded to describe the chase in some detail the young men roared with laughter when supper was over sir hercules climbed down from his chair and giving his excuse that he must see how his lady did bade them good-night the sound of laughter followed him up the stairs philomena was not asleep she had been lying on her bed listening to the sound of enormous laughter and the tread of strangely heavy feet on the stairs and along the corridors sir hercules drew a chair to her bedside and sat there for a long time in silence holding his wife's hand and sometimes gently squeezing it at about ten o'clock they were startled by a violent noise there was a breaking of glass a stamping of feet with an outburst of shouts and laughter the uproar continuing for several minutes sir hercules rose to his feet and in spite of his wife's entreaties prepared to go and see what was happening there was no light on the staircase and Sir Hercules groped his way down cautiously, lowering himself from stair to stair and standing for a moment on each tread before adventuring on a new step. The noise was louder here. The shouting articulated itself into recognizable words and phrases. A line of light was visible under the dining-room door. Sir Hercules tiptoed across the hall towards it just as he approached the door there was another terrific crash of breaking glass and jangled metal what could they be doing standing on tiptoe he managed to look through the keyhole in the middle of the ravaged table old simon the butler so primed with drink that he could scarcely keep his balance was dancing a jig his feet crunched and tinkled among the broken glass and his shoes were wet with spilt wine the three young men sat round thumping the table with their hands or with the empty wine bottles, shouting and laughing encouragement. The three servants, leaning against the wall, laughed too. Ferdinando suddenly threw a handful of walnuts at the dancer's head, which so dazed and surprised the little man that he staggered and fell down on his back, upsetting a decanter and several glasses. They raised him up, gave him some brandy to drink, thumped him on the back. The old man smiled and hiccuped tomorrow said ferdinando we'll have a concerted ballet of the whole household with father hercules wearing his club and lion skin added one of his companions and all three roared with laughter sir hercules would look and listen no further he crossed the hall once more and began to climb the stairs lifting his knees painfully high at each degree this was the end there was no place for him now in the world no place for him and ferdinando together His wife was still awake. To her questioning glance, he answered, They are making mock of old Simon. Tomorrow it will be our turn. They were silent for a time. At last, Philomena said, I do not want to see tomorrow. It is better not, said Sir Hercules. Going into his closet, he wrote in his day book a full and particular account of all the events of the evening. While he was still engaged in this task, he rang for a servant and ordered hot water and a bath, to be made ready for him at eleven o'clock when he had finished writing he went into his wife's room and preparing a dose of opium twenty times as strong as that which she was accustomed to take when she could not sleep he brought it to her saying here is your sleeping draught philomena took the glass and lay there for a little time but did not drink immediately the tears came into her eyes do you remember the songs we used to sing sitting out there sulla terrazza in the summer time she began singing softly in her ghost of a cracked voice a few bars from stradella's amor amor non dormir pew and you playing on the violin it seems such a short time ago and yet so long 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 addio amore arrivederci she drank off the draught and lying back on the pillow closed her eyes sir hercules kissed her hand and tiptoed away as though he were afraid of waking her he returned to his closet and having recorded his wife's last words to him he poured into his bath the water that had been brought up in accordance with his orders the water being too hot for him to get into the bath at once he took down from the shelf his copy of suetonius he wished to read how seneca had died he opened the book at random but dwarfs he read he held in abhorrence as being lucis natura and of evil omen he winced as though he had been struck the same augustus he remembered had exhibited in the amphitheatre a young man called lucius of good family who was not quite two feet in height and weighed seventeen pounds but had a stentorian voice he turned over the pages tiberius caligula claudius nero it was a tale of growing horror seneca his preceptor he forced to kill himself and there was petronius who had called his friends about him at the last bidding them talk to him not of the consolations of philosophy but of love and gallantry while the life was ebbing away through his open veins dipping his pen once more in the ink he wrote on the last page of his diary he died of roman death then putting the toes of one foot into the water and finding that it was not too hot he threw off his dressing-gown and taking a razor in his hand sat down in the bath with one deep cut he severed the artery in his left wrist then lay back and composed his mind to meditation the blood oozed out floating through the water in dissolving wreaths and spirals in a little while the whole bath was tinged with pink the color deepened sir hercules felt himself mastered by an invincible drowsiness he was sinking from vague dream to dream soon he was sound asleep there was not much blood in his small body End of chapter 13. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.